production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, August 17th, and I'm Patty Schlonsky, the partner in charge of the Cleveland office of the law firm Ulmer & Byrne, member of the City Club Board of Directors and co-chair of the Program Committee. Leading up to the election on November 8, 2022, the City Club of Cleveland has extended invitations to the Republican and Democratic Party candidates running for Ohio governor. Today, I have the privilege of introducing you to the Democratic candidate for governor of Ohio, Nan Whaley. <laughs> Mayor Whaley grew up in a small town in Indiana and moved to Ohio to attend the University of Dayton, where she earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry becoming the first person in her family to graduate from college. Whaley later earned a Master's of Public Administration from Wright State University. In 2005, she became the youngest woman ever elected to the Dayton City Commission. She then served on the Montgomery County Board of Elections and as a deputy to the Montgomery County Auditor. In 2013, Mayor Whaley was elected as the 56th Mayor of Dayton and remained in that role after winning re-election in 2017. During her time as mayor, Dayton became the first major city in Ohio to offer paid family leave for all municipal employees and made high quality preschool available to every three and four year old. Whaley was also selected as the president of the United States Conference of Mayors from 2021 to 2022. Mayor Whaley left her position as the mayor of Dayton in 2022 to run for Ohio governor. If you have questions for our speaker, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them to the, at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming the Honorable Nan Whaley. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here at the City Club. I was talking to Dan before uh, we came on stage here in the library room, and I think this is like my third or fourth time speaking, and I have to tell you, the crowd gets a little bigger each time I come, so I think that's a good sign. And um, please, I want to give a special thanks to the wait staff that makes sure all of this happens quickly. Can you please give them a round of applause? And I just want to mention, too, just how lucky you are. You all know this. You're big supporters of the City Club in, in Cleveland and just how special this is, right? Especially in this time and in this place in our democracy where the discourse of ideas have gotten to a frenetic pace, and sometimes people don't even want to listen to each other or listen to others. And to have this, to be so long in your community, and for the an incredible stellar support you provide to it is something special, and I know you will continue to make sure this harbinger, harbinger of democracy stays put in Cleveland. So thank you for that uh, great support of a great organization. And it's a great pleasure to be back at the City Club um, I always love to get a chance to talk to you all about the issues of the day, and certainly I think there's a pretty big issue coming in 83 days, and so I have some very specific things <laughs> to tell you all about. As mentioned, I was the former mayor, I'm the former mayor of Dayton, uh, served for eight years, and I love my city. I loved being mayor. Mayor is a place you get to be visionary about where you want your community to go, and at the same time, you have to fill the potholes and plow the snow 
or they will kick your tail out. Right? You've got to do both at the same time. And there are not a lot of jobs like that in elected office where you get to do both, to really set a vision and get the work done. And I really loved that work. Uh, I love talking to mayors. That's why I became the president of the US Conference of Mayors, working with mayors. I see that across the state of Ohio, local leaders doing their level best to move their communities forward. It is an honor to get to do that work. So it was a tough decision for me to decide to not run for re-election of mayor and to run for governor. But the reason why I ran was exactly because of the local leaders I see. I see them working hard, moving their community forward, but they don't have a, a partner at the state house or in the governor's office. And that is what pushed me into this election. Now I want to talk a little bit about my opponent. You may have heard of him. <laughs> He's been in office uh, since I was 10 months old. I am 46 years old. <laughs> Look, I don't say that to be funny, although it is funny, right? But I want you to think, if you were alive, about what Ohio was like in 1976, right? In 1976, the average Ohio wage earner was making more than the average American wage earner. Today, Ohio lags the average American wage earner. In 1976, we exported cars. Today, we export our college graduates. In 1976, all of our communities were growing in prosperity. There was innovation and leadership at the State House. Today, we find ourselves on the top of bad lists, like leading the country in infant mortality, or leading the country in opioid deaths, and on the bottom of good ones, like economic growth and mobility. That's what we've gotten as Ohio families with Mike DeWine's Ohio. Now, how's Mike DeWine fared? Not too bad. He owns a baseball team, a minor league baseball team in North Carolina. His personal mansion, not the governor's mansion, his personal mansion has its own Wikipedia page. You can check it out. And he's able to put $4 million of his own money into this governor's race. So that's what we've seen for the past 46 years as Mike DeWine has been in elected office. And further, these past four years, we've seen a man that is too weak to stand up to extremists and radicals in his party. Now, many of you have heard of me before, if you hadn't heard of me in this race, from the terrible mass shooting we had in Dayton in 2019. Right, a man, a deranged man who got access to an assault-like weapon, went through our crowded Oregon district and killed nine and injured 27 more in the course of 32 seconds. If not for brave Dayton police officers, it would have been hundreds. The next day, Daytonians gathered, thousands of them, on the same site where we had lost our loved ones only hours earlier. And Mike DeWine came to speak. And when he got up on the stage to speak, the people of Dayton shouted something in frustration, hundreds of them, do something, do something. So loud that the governor had to sit down. He couldn't finish his remarks. The next day, the governor called me, and he told me he planned to do something around gun safety. I took him at his word. I believe if someone, regardless of party, is willing to go forward in a direction you want to go, you work to make a difference. I stood next to him as he unveiled his strong Ohio bill to the state legislature, and then I watched him do absolutely nothing to move that bill forward. In fact, I watched him then do the exact opposite to make our communities more safe. I watched him sign the Stand Your Ground bill which uh, affects uh, African-Americans in our community a great deal, makes it less safe. Then I watched him sign permitless concealed carry, which increases officer-involved shootings by 14%, and uh, law enforcement was against. And then in the wake of Uvalde, I saw him sign a bill that arms teachers, bus drivers, and cafeteria workers with very little training even though teachers, bus drivers, and cafeteria workers, and law enforcement were against this move. 
See, it's for Mike DeWine, community safety is just a talking point around election time. He doesn't listen to law enforcement or what will make our communities more safe. When it gets hard, he leaves running away from the issue. And I learned that in the wake of the Dayton shooting. He is too weak to stand up and to the, to the extremists of his party. He is more concerned with holding on to his political power than really making Ohio communities more safe. Now, as terrifying and, and what a tragedy that story is, we've witnessed again just the extreme nature of Mike DeWine post June 24th. Now, we know if you're a woman in America, the fall of Roe has been terrible. A right taken away in my lifetime, it's never happened in our country. But if you're an Ohio woman, it's incredibly detrimental. Seven hours after Roe fell, Mike DeWine and Dave Yost moved forward the six-week abortion ban seven hours after that, wasting no time. And we've already seen the terrible repercussions from this act. A 10-year-old raped in Columbus, unable to get services, has to go to Indiana. Right now she'd have to go to Chicago to terminate a pregnancy of a 10-year-old. When Mike DeWine's staff was asked about this, they told reporters, A, she probably doesn't exist, and if she existed, she's probably lying. When Columbus police arrested her rapist, Mike DeWine had two words, no comment. A woman in Dayton, receives, excited to carry to term, receives terrible news that she has cancer. She has to get chemotherapy in order to save her own life. The only way that can be done is by terminating the pregnancy. Imagine what this woman and her family must be going through. Excitement on one end to grow her family, the very next day having to fight for her own life. What does Mike DeWine's Ohio say? You're not welcome here. You have to go across state lines to get the services to save your life, to terminate the pregnancy, to move forward with chemotherapy. That's what we see right now in Mike DeWine's Ohio. And I hate to tell you, if he gets reelected, it's going to get worse. Mike DeWine has told anti-choice advocates, and I am quoting here, he will go as far as possible. So what does as far as possible look like? In the State House right now is a bill that bans abortion at conception. It bans birth control like IUD. It bans in vitro fertilization. Mike DeWine's Ohio. And let me be clear, these are issues that the majority of Ohioans disagree with, where Mike DeWine is and the extremists in his party. Nine out of 10 Ohioans believe that we should have universal background checks. Folks, nine out of 10 Ohioans don't believe the Ohio State Buckeyes are the best football team. 82% of Ohioans believe that we should have some access to abortion in the state. Certainly not the answer to the rape of a 10-year-old or a woman who is fighting for her own life. That is how out of step Mike DeWine is today. That's the kind of Ohio we have under his leadership. Now, I am very excited to be on this ticket with a fellow Clevelander. Uh, the former mayor of Cleveland Heights and Cuyahoga County Councilwoman, Cheryl Stevens, who's here with me today. Thank you. I always figure what's better than one mayor but two, right? <laughs> and here's what Cheryl and I want to do, right? We want to focus on issues that are affecting working families and communities that have lots of workers, right? So we want folks pay to go up their bills to go down, and their government to work for them. So, okay, so what do I mean by that? Pay to go up, pretty easy. Raise the wage to $15 an hour across the state for minimum wage, which will raise the wage for all Ohioans. Thank you. <laughs> Investing in the jobs of the future. We know that solar panels and wind turbines are going to be key in energizing our country. And right now, Michigan and Pennsylvania are eating our lunch in those good union-paying jobs that are going not to this state, but to states around us. 
We need to invest in the next industrial revolution. We built the last one. We have the best workers in the world in Ohio. There is no reason why we can't make it here. Getting pay up. We got to get bills down too. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. I have lots, but I'm going to give two. You know, $2.6 billion is coming down from the federal government, money that Mike DeWine was against. And we've called on the governor to do an inflation rebate of $350 to every working family, about 89% of Ohioans, to give them some relief during these inflation cuts. Now look, the inf inflation hits. Uh, now, I've been a little busy this past couple months, so I haven't been to the grocery store, but my husband goes every week. And he comes home and talks to me about the top cost of the turkey and the cheese every week. It is tough. It is tough. And working class families are struggling to make ends meet. Mike DeWine could give this inflation rebate, put it directly in people's pockets. The money is coming to Ohio anyway to give relief. And this isn't a crazy liberal idea. States like Florida and Indiana have already done this, right? So we need to give relief right away. We got to crack down on price gouging. We're one of the few states in the country that it is still legal in this state to have corporations price gouge consumers with no repercussions. It's affecting our prescription drug costs. That's why they're out of bounds in Ohio. And seniors in Ohio have to make tough decisions about whether they put food on their table or take their life-saving medicine. And then we have to cap insulin rates at $30 a month. The state of Kentucky has capped insulin rates at $30 a month. If Kentucky can do it, Ohio certainly can. <laughs> so we talk about getting costs down. Now, these are pretty common sense ideas. They're not fancy. They're not you know, economists. They're pretty direct. You know, economic sound ideas to make sure that we give relief and get wages up. So the why is the reason we can't have this in the state? Well, I don't know of the other list we're the top of. We're number one in the country, according to the FBI. Our state house is the most corrupt in the entire country. And folks, that takes some work. <laughs> and you've probably seen it. A First Energy, the company down in Akron, billion-dollar bailout after they bankrolled Mike DeWine's campaign with money they didn't have to disclose, right? Mike DeWine's given them everything they wanted. Their top lobbyists got to be the head of PUCO. They got a bailout where we're still, we're still bailing out an energy company on our bills every single month that's in Indiana. The corruption at the state house has got to go. The first thing I did when I announced for governor was an anti-corruption plan, and it's going to take a complete and systemic overhaul. We've put that together. We think it, there are things the governor can do directly, and then we have to, have to in the state house have transparency in who's putting money into our campaigns. I don't know if you've seen, they've already started again with a million dollar ad against us. No one knows who's paying for it. This is the money that First Energy bankrolled last time in Mike DeWine's campaign. And then we have to make sure that we can have fair districts so we can have the rollback of these terrible gun laws and pass universal background checks. And then once you elect Cheryl Stevens and I on November 8th, on November 9th, we will move forward with a constitutional amendment to put Roe, the Roe versus Wade laws in our Ohio Constitution so women will have access to abortion no matter what extremist. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit too about, I want to close by talking about the future of our state. I know you all wouldn't be here if you didn't care about our state as deeply as I do. We might not agree on everything, but I know we agree on that. We all want Ohio to be a state we can be proud of, a state where our kids want to stay and build their own lives, a state where companies and people from across the country want to come to. Now, this is personal for me. As mentioned, I grew up in a small town in Indiana. And back then, Ohio seemed like the big time. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And when I told my parents I wanted to go to the University of Dayton, they were not thrilled. But they made me agree to volunteer on President Clinton's reelection campaign because Ohio picked presidents. I want kids all across the country to see Ohio the same way I did and come here for the opportunity we can offer them. If you share that vision with me, then here is the truth. 
this is one of the most important elections of our lifetime. Because I am not sure people realize just how close we are to turning into a state that young people and companies actively avoid. And I'm really not exaggerating here. If you are a young woman and you know that if you face complications during your pregnancy, you could die on the operating table because all abortion is outlawed, are you gonna wanna move here? Are you gonna wanna stay here if you have that choice? If you're a young person who grew up with active shooter drills and see the news every week of senseless mass shootings, are you gonna wanna stay in a state where our governor has signed into law that anyone can carry a concealed weapon without a permit or a background check? Why would you stay here if you can't feel safe going about your daily life? If you care about democracy, why would you wanna stay in a state where our elected leaders openly flaunt the rule of law and ignore both Ohio voters and the Ohio Supreme Court by drawing unconstitutional legislative and congressional districts. And think about what this will mean when companies want to move or time to expand here. Why would you come to Ohio if you cannot attract the top talent? Or when you know the government will give away corporate bailouts like House Bill 6 that you have to foot the bill for? Just two weeks ago, we saw one of Indiana's largest companies say they will have to rethink their presence there because of the state's abortion ban, a company that had been there for its entire time. It's just a matter of time when we'll see that here too. Now, folks on the coast look down on places like Ohio. They expect the awful scenario I just laid out and they're more than happy to take our young people and companies that leave. But it does not have to be that way. We have a choice, and we can choose something better. I'm in this race because I'm ready to prove the naysayers wrong about this state. I'm ready to show Mike DeWine and his corrupt and extremist buddies that Ohio isn't going to accept their harmful policies. I'm ready to prove to the elites on the coast, prove them wrong, and that we're ready to do this again. And what that takes isn't us agreeing on everything. What it takes is us refusing the extremism and politics of a division that Mike DeWine and others in his party are pushing. What it takes is us saying we won't strip away the rights of women. We won't make our state less safe and we will not settle for decline. We can build an Ohio where every family can thrive no matter what community they live. But that choice starts in November and it is time for all of us to step it up. Now thank you for all for being here today and showing that you care about the future of our state. With that, I'm happy to take any of your questions. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Patty Schlonsky, member of the City Club Board of Directors. Today, we are hearing from the Democratic candidate for Ohio Governor, Nan Whaley. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text questions to 330-541-5794 that's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Thanks, Patty. That the Supreme Court uh, opinions don't matter to the Republican and, con and State House. They keep defined, def you know, uh, not paying any attention to what the, in the gerrymandering case, and the same thing with the state school uh, funding. Uh, what, and then on top of that, we had, last time we had CoinGate, we had a massive change in state government. And with the Bill 6, 
why are we not seeing more people uproar about that to make some significant changes, not only in the governor, but the state representative and senators? Thank you for your question. Look, I think <laughs> there was a lot in there, Reed. So um, let me start by saying this. Uh, this governor's race has an impact on the, the illegitimate gerrymandered districts that our state legislators are voting for right now. Uh, Mike DeWine told, again, in 2018, he said that he would, he would work for fair districts. Of course, when the extremists and the radicals in his party came to see him, he folded like a wet blanket and did whatever they wanted. And that, you know, was again another lie he's told to Ohio and it's when he was running at a time when it was politically convenient. Uh, they have to redraw. These districts are only for this cycle. And who the governor is is going to determine a big part of how they're drawn. Now, I'll tell you something they say about me in Dayton. You know, they, you know, it's a pretty conservative area, if you're curious, and most of the Republicans there say, I don't, I don't necessarily like where she stands, but at least she stands. <laughs> I think we need that kind of leadership in the governor's office, frankly. And look, we have to make sure that these districts are fair. And I don't think that we'll, I'm not saying, saying oh, we're going to have Democratic districts. I think we'll still have a Republican majority with fair districts. But imagine what our state legislature would look like if they had to think about the decisions made in general elections rather than the decisions made in primary elections. It will normalize our, uh, our government, and that's the whole point. But what we've had is elected leaders that don't think you care. That's what it is. And most, when, when, uh, when House Bill 6 went down, you know, Bill Site said to his, his caucus, the terrible Republican state legislature from Cincinnati, he said, don't worry about it. The people will forget about House Bill 6 just like they forgot about the shooting in Dayton. That is how they're governing on Ohio. And that's why this November we have a choice. We can say, yeah, that's all right, or we can say, no, we need a complete and total overhaul. Now, I think it's probably going to take a working class woman for Dayton to get the complete and total overhaul done. <laughs> hey. Good afternoon, Dan. I heard everything you said, Dan. Okay. Well, let me just go into the question because it uh, belies all that. I just want to know what your uh, plan is because I've, I've read some of the really innovative things that you're planning to do um, to streamline that service for veterans and, and the investments that we will see um, under you as governor. So, Thank thanks. you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, so I am the only candidate that's ever in, in the governor's race that's ever had a veterans policy plan. And what we did to, to create the veterans plan was we brought veterans together from Ohio to say, hey, what do you need? Uh, and a couple of things came out of that. Number one, the state government's leaving um, federal dollars on the table for the lack of veterans homes. Right now there's only two veterans homes in the state, Georgetown and Sandusky. Those are pretty far away from each other. And so families where their veterans are aging have to make really tough decisions about whether they keep them close to home or they get the services they need. So we propose putting forward 15 new veterans homes across the state so we can have them all across the state and families can get to their loved ones much easier. The second part I that we think is really key is the veterans, you know, there's lots of um, opportunities for veterans, but they don't know how to get all of them, right? And so we want, of course, put that on a one-stop shot on the internet, but we also want to have like veterans ombudsmans that are veterans themselves that connect to veterans so they can get the services they need. We also want to have a, ve a veterans um, a committee that is diverse and broad, right? Because our veterans are very, they vary in age and location and uh, male and female, like they are all over the map, literally in the state. And so listening and having input from veterans so we can continue to have investment from the state, we think is really important. 
Now, you know, I, I'm from Dayton, the site of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is the largest single-site employer in the state of Ohio. And so for us, we're proud that and, and we were named every year either the first or second best community for veterans to want to move to in the country. But the state can do a lot more with this issue, particularly, particularly by not leaving federal money on the table, like in the creation of veterans' homes. You can check it out at our site, nanwhaley.com slash veterans. There's a whole plan there we're really, really proud of. And we certainly think that we should back up our work. If we're grateful for folks' service and protecting and putting their life on the line for our democracy, then the state needs to step up and do these things to make sure that we show it. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming today. I was wondering, when Trump came to Dayton after the shootings, you were very disciplined, very tight-lipped in any comments that you made about the visit. But as you look back now, and in light of the last couple months between the hearings and the FBI, is there any obser observations you could share with us that would be a perspective on perhaps a potential constitutional crisis? Is there anything that you can share that you saw or heard that might be a help? Well, thank you for those comments. Um, look, I think the period after uh, the shooting was definitely one of the toughest in my life. And um, I can, you know, can only imagine the forge of friendships and relationships I have post-shooting from uh, people that were there that, you know, I call on the day of the anniversary of the shooting to check in on because many of our lives will never be the same post August 4th in Dayton. Uh, I'll say this though, I, you know, look, I believe in democracy and I believe in the rule of law. And, you know, I, it, you know, during that period of time, there were even Democrats that were mad at me because I said that Trump was welcome to come to Dayton. But he's the president of the United States. And so when you have a tragedy, he's, they're welcome to come in Dayton. And so I think that's what's lost a lot in our politics and our work overall. Uh, we have to, on both sides, have to be willing to recognize who the president is. I know we're at a low bar here, but uh, you know, recognize that democracy exists. And you know, I'm proud of that time because you know, it's the job of the mayor to bring people together after a tragedy. And it is difficult in this time of hyper, hyper partisanship. Um, and that's why I have so much respect for local leaders because a local leader is really the last place that that can get done. We're hoping we can change that at the state house too again with the change of redistricting, having a normal state house again where things get done on behalf of working families will take tremendous leadership and Mike DeWine is just too weak to get that done, it's clear. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for coming, Mayor Whirly. If you are elected governor, you are going to face for at least the first two years of your term and probably the entire term a Republican legislature. Probably. Which, which means, and this is great, it means you can veto all those extremist type bills. Right. <laughs> and I appreciate that. But how do you expect to get your agenda through such a legislature? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, so the governor in Ohio, fun fact, is the fourth or fifth most powerful governor position in the country. Uh, you wouldn't know it by watching Mike DeWine do it, but it is. Um, and, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity here, again, to stop bad things from happening, as you mentioned. And I think the first two years are going to be a lot of stopping bad stuff from happening. Now, as a woman, that will be a welcome reprieve, since bad things are happening constantly to us. And to working families, that would be a welcome reprieve. But as I mentioned, we will redraw in between, you know, 22 to 24. And there will be a huge opportunity to change the face of the legislature. It will not happen if Mike DeWine is reelected governor. And so this point will normalize our, off, our work at the State House. And so I think you will see the first two years of, of our first term being very different than the, the second two years. And I relish that opportunity. We have to do triage first and then grow our agenda. Now, again, my agenda is where the majority of Ohioans are. So if we don't have gerrymandered districts, I believe we'll be able to move forward because the majority of Ohioans agree with every single thing Cheryl and I are talking about. And that is what we want to get to instead of extremist out-of-step actions by Governor Mike DeWine and the State House that the majority of Ohioans do not agree with. Hi, Kay. Hi, Nan. You spoke about the 10-year-old rape victim who was forced to go to Indiana 
to enter pregnancy. I've been trying to make myself imagine what that would have felt like to have been that little girl because that is the law of the land in Mike DeWine's Ohio. I love playing soccer. I wanted to be a Broadway actress. It's physically painful to imagine, but I think that we have to. I think we can't just look away. Nan, you have a niece who will be 10 next year. You talk about her a lot on the campaign trail. What do you have to say to Mike DeWine on her behalf? Yeah, Katie, it's tough. Um, my nine-year-old niece uh, lives in Cincinnati, and she started, uh, I think, fourth grade this, uh, this week. And uh, my mother, who also moved to Cincinnati, so I tried to get everyone from Indiana to move to Ohio. I'm doing my part. Uh, we, were, we came to the rally together that was in Columbus just days after, after the decision. And, you know, I said there, you know, my mom fought for these rights for me. And it is not going to happen that I'm not going to make sure that these rights aren't there for my, my niece, who's nine. Like, this is the fight. Uh, when, we, when Abby asked um, what was going on, uh, my, my brother and my sister-in-law told her, like, they're taking, they just said, like, look, they're taking away some of the decisions you should have, Abby. They're taking away some of the decisions you should have and your Aunt Nan's not gonna put up with it. And I think that's what we all have to think. We all have um, a daughter, a niece, a cousin, that it's going to affect. And I, um, as a 46-year-old woman, am extremely grateful for my mother and the people that fought for this right, for me to have all those decisions at my doorstep. And I know that women across the country and women in Ohio have had it with the idea that their daughters and their nieces aren't going to have the same decisions that they fought for and have today. And I'm gonna fight like hell for November 8th so Abby doesn't have to go through that. Thank you. Hello, Mayor. My name is Ritu Chatri, and I'm the CEO of Community Behavioral Health Center. Um, Mike DeWine has focused um, a lot on mental health care issues in the state. And can you talk a little bit um, about your plans for expanding services and compare and contrast uh, with what he's done over the last few years? Yeah, thank you, Reedy. Thank you for your service. Uh, look, uh, Dayton led the country when I became mayor in accidental overdose deaths from the opioid epidemic. And so uh, one of the pieces of work that we did was really attacking the addiction crisis. And mental health and addiction, as you know, are connected um, expressly. And we uh, made all kinds of check changes in Dayton through a collective impact model. Over 200 nonprofits came together, criminal justice system, um, you know, anybody that was impacted, families who had lost loved ones, came together on this collective impact model to change our system, to move forward. And there were pieces, there are examples of things that we did, like making sure that police officers come the next day, knock on the door that someone's called 911 and say, hey, you had an overdose, do you need help now? Uh, and the work that we did um, cut accidental overdose deaths in half in my community. Uh, hundreds of lives saved, and it was a group effort of galvanizing the community together. Uh, and we were able to do that because we had local funding. I wanna compare that to Portsmouth, a town that was also leading in accidental overdose deaths. And because we had local funding, we had more flexibility to do different kinds of beds, right? Because Medicaid expansion only allows, Medicaid only allows 30-day beds. And so that is all Portsmouth can offer, is a 30-day bed. And so they have tons of 30-day beds, but no real services because they don't have local funding or the flexibility of funding to be able to make the changes. And now the community is even more frustrated at those in the throes of addiction. You know, our piece was to make sure we treated addiction like the disease that it is. Uh, Mike DeWine has been really great lately of throwing the federal money that he didn't support as grants down to local communities, particularly in mental health. But there's a challenge there, as you know, because it's a grant and it is not long-term systemic funding. He has not done any long-term systemic funding really for mental health. And we are going to hit a, a, a wall when the funding from the federal government ends. Further, 
we know social workers and mental health providers know this because it's hard to find mental health and social workers because they know it's a two to three year job. So what we need to do is have long-term systemic funding for mental health and, and addiction services that aren't places just where the local communities can do and the local communities that can't do without. And that's gonna take the state to do that. Uh, now I know like he likes to go on and on about this, but at the end of the day, it is a short-term answer that he's given that is not gonna solve the problems without long-term sustainable investment, and that's what I'm committed to. The re it's a big reason why I'm running. I saw this over and over again, where the State House continues to cut local services, where they are either health and human services, or you know we call them hard services, police, fire, you know, road services, in order to give the wealthy a big tax cut. And the chicken has come home to roost in the state because after the federal funding ends, we won't have those services in most communities. That needs to change, and that's why it's so important we have a different candidate for governor. Thank you. We have a text question that has come in. Where do you stand on improving Ohio primary and secondary education? How do you see the governor's office driving improvements? So there is one thing, only one in the past two years this legislature has done okay, B minus, was uh, putting the fair funding plan in place. I give them a B minus, it was a good step. They should have funded it for six years, they funded it for two, and so now we're gonna be limping through to make sure the fair funding model continues to go through. Immediately after they did that, they introduced what they call the backpack bill, which, which uh, makes vouchers universal and makes huge access to charters. Now, again, I'm from Dayton. John Houston was the state rep and speaker of the house in Dayton, and he decided to make Day Dayton's kids a test on the charter school experiment program. What we saw in Dayton at one point until Hurricane Katrina, we led the nation in the largest number of kids in charter schools per capita in the country. Right? And we saw how it debilitating it was for our local school district. It is not something you come back from when one out of three kids leave the public school system. And we're gonna see that not just now, we can see what's happened in Dayton on the debilitating of a local school district. We will see that across the state in this attempted privatization of public education. I'm against it. Uh, I think it is a way, I mean, it is the way they want to privatize basically public education, which is so key to our entire state on K-12. Uh, I used to think that um, people picked what city they wanted to live in based on the mayor. I know that is not true. They pick it on what the school district is. And so school districts being strong and public education being strong in our state is incredibly important. Another thing I'll stop from happening by vetoing is this backpack bill. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mayor. I've been challenged to ask this question, which is a difficult question for me given my position as Mayor and Safety Director of a city that's minority, uh, minority African American, but my police force does not look like us. Please talk about police reform from a governor's perspective when you become governor. <laughs> Thank you, Mayor Thank Blackwell. You. Thanks for your service. Another great mayor, so I really love mayors. Look, after the George Floyd murder, I think across the, the country, we saw uh, a change in how communities wanted to be policed. Very loud and very clear. And in Dayton, we went through a police reform process. We had five different groups, over 100 people engaged, and police were in every single, in every single group as well. Because I always believe we don't do things to people, we do things with to move, an or to move things forward. And it was very important. And friends were made in these groups. And these were tough, tough conversations. This was not an easy process. They also did this all over Zoom, which I find a miracle that 25 Daytonians would come every other week spending hundreds of hours. This is how important it was to our community for, for that work. Uh, we changed things like alternative response model. Dayton's doing a pilot right now, so you have mediation specialists. When you call 911, you may not get a police officer, but someone else that can help you, again, with mental health and addiction services, mediate a fight between your neighbor. We're trying to do this work. We've used Eugene, Oregon as a national best practice in this. They've been doing it for four decades. Uh, so those kind of pieces. Changing our use of force policy came out of this work. right? So I do think local communities have an opportunity 
to do that work, and the state needs to support them, right? Here's, here's one example. Uh, anytime there's an officer involved shooting or aggression, it should not be the local police department that does the investigation. The challenge is, is a lot of times, the local police department cannot find anyone who will take the investigation. The state should automatically, if a city asks, the state should take it. You know, the state turns it down a lot of times because they don't want to touch it either. That's wrong. That's a way the state could make sure that there's trust and capacity on altercations between citizens and police. That is just one example. Now, when the governor came out with what he was going to do, again, nothing, but he did come with uh, the former sheriff of Montgomery County, Phil Plummer. The two men came out and had this all figured out. I want to let you know that Phil Plummer, who's a state rep now, had second to Cuyahoga County, the number of civil rights violations in his jail. This is who Mike DeWine turns to when he wants to solve a problem about police and community relations. I believe in bringing people together, police and the NAACP, police and civil rights organizations, so we can move our community forward. And you know this, Mayor Blackwell, you know, I go into, Dayton's about a 40% African-American community, and after I go to a neighborhood meeting, and I said, I hear you. I hear you. You want the police to come when called, and you want police on your street, but you want to be treated with respect when they come. As mayor, you have to hold both of these ideas in your hand at the same time, and as governor, I intend to do that too. Thanks for coming. <clears throat> Any, what are your thoughts about this, <clears throat> I think, uh, crisis of rising um, tuition costs at our, our universities, uh, our state universities. And um, have you thought about what we might at the state level uh, do to make it more affordable, which is a key to economic development? Yes, a great point. Uh, there's two points I want to talk about on, on this. First, like every child that g grows up in Ohio should have access to a quality education, not just K through 12 but also if they want to go to community college or four-year college, they should have access to do that. And it shouldn't be that their parents and they can't afford it that stops them from going there. And that's what we're seeing right now. Now you also know over Mike DeWine's period in office and John Husted's period in office, they had this idea that they were going to cut taxes for the wealthy and multinational corporations and then the wealth was just going to trickle down onto us and we would be like so great in every single community and all problems would be solved. Now clearly that didn't happen because I would be rolling around in huge opportunity as mayor of Dayton because of all the great funding that came down from the state with that win. It is a failed policy. And what they've done instead is they've continued to cut from mental health and addiction services, an example, from uh, post-secondary education. About 15 years ago, 70% of the state's uh, schools, 70% of their funding came from the state. Today it's around 40%. Parents and families are picking up that cost and it is making it out of reach for people like me who w went, during, went to school during the sweet time, right, where it was affordable and I could get a student loan to move forward. That is out of reach for someone like me today. And the state absolutely has a role. It needs to invest more in, in state schools. It needs to also require state schools to be less worried about what out-of-state folks come because they're trying to make it so attractive so they can get that out-of-state funding so they can spend more because the state has cut them off. And who gets left out are Ohio kids. It's unacceptable. And it will, uh, it will again, have huge effects for us on workforce, on our ability to have future technologies to build and innovate the industry of the future because uh, four-year institutions are out of reach for Ohio's kids. It's got to change. And it comes with the state actually funding Ohio's public education and public institutions. Good afternoon. Hi. What is your perspective on how the state managed our response to the pandemic? What do you think was done right? What would you have done differently? Well, I thought that um, the state did a great job while Amy Acton was the director of the public of health. <laughs> and look, again, Mike DeWine was not strong enough to keep her there. He was too weak. 
he rolled over and said, oh well. And we immediately saw the change, right? I remember particularly where when he was doing the opening, he allowed, and this, you know, you gotta go back to, let's go in the fax machine, way back machine to 2020, right? Uh, and you know, uh, March happens and in May, we're starting to open up um, the state. We don't have vaccines during this time. Uh, in Dayton, we didn't even have tests, right? So you couldn't even find if you had it or not, right? Because most of the bigger cities got the tests, but Dayton, no tests to be found. So the only thing you really had were masks, right? So the mayors of the state said, um, we'll support an opening uh, if, if you do a mask mandate across the state, right? We'll support a, a limited opening because this is the only protection we have. And while there's some tests, there's not a lot. Most commu lower, smaller communities don't have them. And he agreed to that. And 24 hours later, he lifted that mask mandate, right? Because again, the extremists in his party, no way, no go. He called me after that, because I, I, I said like, hey, this is wrong, like we should have mask mandates publicly. And he called me and he said, um, Nan, um, and this, I want to point out, at this point, the governor was the most popular governor in the country, okay? You remember those days? And uh, he said, uh, well, Nan, I, I, cannot, I cannot lose the public on this. And I said, governor, you lose the public when you don't tell them the truth. And we know what the truth is around masks. And that's the difference here. We need to have a governor that tells the truth, whatever the ramifications are, right? And Mike DeWine is too interested in holding on to his political power than actually doing that. And we witnessed that through the COVID pandemic too. So that is what is at stake in this race. Now look, um, I've always had the attitude that in order to do the job, you gotta be willing to lose the job. And that's how I governed as mayor. And when you all elect me as governor in November, I will do it that way, that way too. I, that's my promise. Nan, warning, I'm going to ask the crass political question here. Oh, goodness. I'm glad we got to that. All right. Um, so elections are about the future. You cataloged earlier the DeWine decline that we've seen over the course of a political career that is a couple years older than I am. Um, now, sadly, it's so a just fact. Like, you just like said you're younger than me, Mike. <laughs> That's what you just did. Facts are facts. <laughs> um, now, it, it's a sad fact that also a long political career confers a large or a significant uh, name recognition, and that's a benefit in a race. So I want to know. Um, especially in light of the fact that it seems that the governor is trying to duck you, and duck out of debates, and avoid having to confront the fact that he's actually running against a real qualified leader. How do you overcome that name recognition advantage that his decades of public life have conferred? And how do the NAN fans in the crowd like me help you in that in Thank that task. You. Thank you. Uh, uh, Mike, I think you did get to the point. A lot of folks say like, oh, I really like Nan, but can she win? Can she win? I think we hear that a lot. And let me just talk a little bit about the race. Uh, first of all, it is true. He has huge name recognition and he has a lot more money um, than I have. Uh, being working class versus uh, a millionaire, he's just got, and, and, and frankly, a lot of transactional dollars, right? We see a story in the Cleveland Plain Dealer today about uh, where this funding comes from. Like a month after an appointment, RGA gets $100,000, right? So we, we know what's going on here. Uh, we also see in polling that Mike DeWine stays, no matter what the poll is, he's at 43, 44, or 45%. You see, people know him, and that's why he stays at 43, 44, or 45. He has a ceiling. There's nowhere else for him to go. Uh, and it is true that this is my first statewide race. I plan to win my first statewide race. Um, thank you. And it's true that only one out of, uh, that two out of three Ohio voters knew, know who I am and one out of three do not. So you may have seen some commercials trying to explain folks who I am. They're up, they've been up for almost two weeks now. And we think we're seeing that make a dramatic difference so people no, no, get to know who we are. We also find out that 
when they know there's a choice that they don't have to have Mike DeWine, they choose the other person. 66% uh, of the state believes that the state is on the wrong track. It's an enormous number if you're a sitting governor who's been in office for 46 years. So you can help by number one, believing that we deserve better. Believe it. Number two, uh, as my dad likes to say, it takes money to ride the train. And in order to build name recognition, it costs to do that. And so you can donate at nanwhaley.com. I'm proud of the grassroots effort we've done. This past filing, Mike DeWine had 854 donors. We had over 7,000. So it is grassroots effort. And whatever you can afford, right? Whatever, it all makes a difference. Um, and I believe that when people know they have a choice and that the choice is us versus uh, the sitting governor, they're gonna choose us. The last thing I'll say, every single poll we've seen post Dobbs shows that there's been an awakening in this state. And it has to do with women and dads and people that have said enough. And this race in November is going to be about abortion. And there is no place where Mike DeWine is so extreme and so out of touch than on this issue. And we're not, you know, they want to hope, you'll see them hope over and over again, that women will just forget that for the first time in their lifetime, a, lot, a right was taken away from them. And I'm telling you, I am not seeing that across the state of Ohio. And I think a change is coming in this state, and it doesn't matter how much Mike DeWine is known, they just know they don't want Mike DeWine. So where are you guys out? Are we good? Well, I want to thank you all. Uh, I always love the discourse from the City Club. My staff will tell you I prefer the question portion of any sort of conversation than the stump speech, so it's one of my favorite times to come here. Uh, I hope you believe that Ohio deserves better and that Ohio can have better, and I hope that means you'll get active in this race, start talking to your friends and family, and I hope you talk to people that you just don't talk politics to. Right, because too often we get into our circles and we say, oh, this is a safe space to talk to this. I want you to go to unsafe spaces. Now, I don't want you to go to the people that have the let's go Brandon flags, like, forget that, but <laughs> the folks that are quiet, that are quiet, because they deserve better too. And it will be your voice that will make a difference to show that Ohio needs a new path. And like I said, it's gonna take two women to do it. We have never run a woman for governor in the history of Ohio. Um, and when Cheryl and I are elected on November 9th, we'll also change American history as having being the first governor and lieutenant governor in the country that are women. Let's do it, Ohio. We can change Ohio. Thank you, Nan Whaley, for joining us here today at the City Club. We would also like to thank guests at the table hosted by Huntington and to all of you for being with us here today. Coming up next at the City Club, this Friday, August 19th, the Cleveland Metro Parks CEO, Brian Zimmerman, will be in conversation with the City Club's Director of Programming, Cynthia Connolly, to discuss what is next for our region's emerald necklace. The forum is sold out but you can join us via our live stream at cityclub.org or on the radio at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. Then on August 26th, Councilwoman Stephanie Howes will take the stage with Brooke Burns and Leo Winsberg. They will talk about efforts to transform juvenile justice with moderator Piet Van Leer at Policy Matters Ohio. Tickets are still available and you can learn more at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Nan Whaley, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Patty Schlonsky, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.